Not even Harry Potter has ever been found converting phosphate to water. It seems magical, but your glycolytic pathway is doing it all the time. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 19th in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism. And today we're gonna take our first deep dive into looking at all the steps in the glycolytic pathway. And to find some way to tie it all together, we are going to take the theme of how the oxygen from phosphate is used to make water. And this is an interesting theme because it ties directly back into themes that we've already seen before. The idea that in the citric acid cycle, we don't have enough oxygen to make carbon dioxide, so we need to get the oxygen from somewhere. In two cases, it comes directly from water. And in one case, it comes from the phosphate that had originally got it from water. And we saw that same theme about the balance between water and carbon dioxide due to oxygenation of molecules play out when we saw that fat burning requires more water than burning carbs, and conversely, carbs release more CO2 than burning fat because carbs are more, more rich in oxygen than fat is. So we can use this same theme to look at how the relative balance of oxygen is, in this case, gonna lead the oxygen from free phosphate to become or at least become mathematically balanced by water. So without further ado, let's start looking at this pathway. Shown on the screen is the hydrolysis of ATP contrasted with the phosphorylation of glucose, which is the first step in glycolysis. In the hydrolysis of ATP, we can see that when phosphates or more technically correct phosphoryl groups are bound as part of the ATP molecule. They're relatively poor in oxygen and electrons compared to free phosphate because being bound to one another, they're sharing electrons and they're even sharing an oxygen. A phosphoryl group is a phosphorus bound to four oxygens and yet what we're doing here is one oxygen is acting as the fourth oxygen of one phosphoryl group as well as the one next to it. In the hydrolysis of ATP, water donates oxygen and electrons. The donation of electrons allows these two molecules to be self-sufficient in electrons on their own, and the water's oxygen becomes the fourth oxygen needed to constitute free phosphate. At the same time, why do we hydrolyze ATP? Because we release the energy in the chemical bonds between the second and third phosphoryl groups. And so the free phosphate is poor in energy 
compared to the phosphoryl groups that are bound together in ATP. And this energy-poor nature of free phosphate, and yet oxygen-rich nature of free phosphate, was the basis for what happened in substrate-level phosphorylation in the citric acid cycle. Phosphate donated that oxygen that came from water because it was oxygen-rich compared to the citric acid cycle intermediates relative to their need for oxygen. So by converting succinyl-CoA to succinyl-phosphate and then to succinate, phosphate left that oxygen with water, with succinate. And at the same time, there was an energy transfer there where because phosphate in its free state is poor in energy, it can go in there, take the energy contained in the thioester bond between suc the succinyl group and CoA, and then bring that energy back into the ATP molecule. So right there we see two different types of phosphoryl group transfers. We see the standard hydrolysis of ATP where we're releasing energy and we're donating oxygen to free phosphate, or free phosphate coming in in substrate-level phosphorylation and it being the, donation, the, don the donor of oxygen and it being energy poor and taking energy from that molecule. In the phosphorylation of glucose to glucose 6-phosphate, which is catalyzed by hexokinase, hexo for hexose, a six-carbon sugar, and kinase for phosphorylation, the phosphorylation of glucose shown on the bottom is a third type of phosphoryl group transfer that shares some characteristics of each. And like the hydrolysis of ATP, the phosphate is coming directly from ATP. That means that energy is being released from ATP and transferred into the glucose 6-phosphate molecule, which is similar to the hydrolysis of ATP. However, in the case of glucose, the glucose molecule is oxygen-rich. And because it's oxygen-rich, it has its own oxygen that can act as the fourth oxygen of the phosphoryl group. That means that there's no need for hydrolysis of ATP, because remember the role of hydrolysis is to provide that oxygen when you're breaking the bonds. And so in this case, it's somewhat reminiscent of the free phosphate transfer in the citric acid cycle only it's the reverse. There's no consumption or generation of water because the oxygen is being transferred between free phosphate and the molecule being reacted with, in this case, glucose, in the, la in the citric acid cycle, uh, succinyl-CoA. But here it's happening in reverse, so that instead of free phosphate, being the donor of oxygen, it's the glucose molecule that's the donor of oxygen. The net result is that we have a phosphorylation that does not consume water in any way. And since there's no water consumption, what's happening in the net balance here instead is we see a hydrogen ion that's left because we're removing this hydrogen and we're replacing it with phosphate. We'll notice as we go along 
that this general pattern, whether it's going in one direction or another, of exchanging ATP for ADP plus a hydrogen ion is a pattern that we can typically associate with phosphoryl group transfers that don't involve the consumption or generation of water. Step two of glycolysis is to convert glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate. Glucose 6-phosphate and fructose 6-phosphate are isomers of one another, meaning it's the same atomic components of the molecule, but they've been rearranged in how they're oriented. And this is an isomerization reaction. And the enzyme that catalyzes it is called phosphoglucoisomerase because it's a phospho, phosphorylated form of gluco, glucose that is undergoing an isomerization reaction. And the colors on this diagram are not, as they often are used in other cases, indicating the movement of atoms from one place to another. They're drawing your attention to the groups associated with the first carbon, shown in purple, or the second carbon, shown in red. And what you see is that in glucose 6-phosphate, carbon 1 at the top has the carbonyl, and carbon 2 has the hydroxyl group. Whereas in fructose 6-phosphate, carbon 1 has the hydroxyl group and carbon 2 has the carbonyl. So what we've done is we've moved the carbonyl from carbon 1 to carbon 2. Notice that in glucose, the carbonyl is in the last carbon on one end. And when the carbonyl is in the last position on one side or another of a molecule, there's nothing on the other side except a hydrogen, and that's an aldehyde. Therefore, glucose is an aldose, a sugar with an aldehyde group. By contrast, moving the carbonyl from the first carbon to the second carbon moves it into a keto position, because on one side we have carbon, on the other we have another carbon. That makes this carbonyl a ketone carbonyl, so fructose is a ketose. In order to understand why we would convert glucose to fructose, it's helpful to look at how they form rings. So, in a solution and in our cells, we're mostly going to have the ring form of these molecules, but they also exist in a small percentage in the straight chain form. And in the straight chain form is where it's easier to see the nature of the molecule, for example, why it's called an aldose or a ketose. But why they form rings is important to understanding why we have to make this conversion. So as shown on the top, the carbonyl of a sugar, providing it's long enough, as in these where we have six carbon sugars, will react with the last hydroxyl group on the other side. This arrow is showing that this is the group that reacts with this group. This arrow is not showing that it's bending in this pattern. These bonds actually have free rotation around them, and it's actually going to twist around the other way. I don't have it showing that in the diagram because it would be too messy. But understanding that this is actually bending around this way is helpful to understanding how we would identify the carbons once they're in part of the ring structure. So if we start with carbon 1, we can actually go counterclockwise to go up the molecule from the bottom. And if we start at carbon 1 and go clockwise, 
we are going to be going down the molecule. So that's easier to see if we track the colors. So remember, the carbon-1 carbonyl is purple. So we come over here and we look for the carbons are now hidden, but we see the purple oxygen. That purple oxygen is this oxygen from the carbonyl group. It has a red hydrogen. That means that when it reacted with this, this hydrogen on the distal hydroxyl group became part of that OH group. But this is carbon-1. If we go counterclockwise, we see the oxygen that's attached to carbon-5. So if we keep going counterclockwise, this is carbon-5. Carbon-6 is sticking up. Carbon-6 is the one that's phosphorylated, which is why this is called glucose-6-phosphate. We can keep going counterclockwise. So we go from 5 to 4 to 3 to 2, and we're back to 1. Or we could count down the molecule by going clockwise. We start at 1, we go to 2, 3, 4, 5, and then 6 pops up, 6 is phosphorylated, and then 5 to the oxygen that is bound to carbon 5, and then back to carbon 1. Notice that glucose 6-phosphate is not at all symmetrical with respect to the phosphorylated carbon. It's, that carbon is sticking out as one antenna, and, well, if you're aiming to shoot a phosphate at that glucose's antenna, there's only one there. When we move the carbonyl down to the second carbon, what we do is we make it so this second carbon is what binds to the OH group on the fifth carbon. And when we do that, carbon number one is left out of the ring. If we look at fructose 6-phosphate, it's not perfectly symmetrical, but with respect to its antennae, fructose 6-phosphate is a lot more symmetrical. And if you're trying to shoot two phosphates at fructose, you're gonna have a lot easier time. So what phosphoglucoisomerase is doing is it's taking glucose 6-phosphate in the ring form, opening it up to the straight chain form, isomerizing it by bringing the carbonyl from carbon-1 to carbon-2 into fructose-6-phosphate, and then bending fructose-6-phosphate back into the ring. Well, why is it so important to have the second carbon that's sticking out of the ring in a relatively more symmetrical pattern? Because we need to do a very similar phosphorylation reaction to that other part of the molecule. Keep in mind that what our eventual goal is, is to split apart the glucose molecule in half. If phosphoryl groups, being phosphorylated, is what's keeping it ionic and preventing it from slipping out of the cell, we want to accomplish that to both halves when we break them apart. Furthermore, we need the two halves to be equivalent to one another so that we don't need two different sets of enzymes to complete the glycolytic pathway after we split them apart. So what we wind up doing after we make fructose 6-phosphate having carbon-1 exposed is, if you look here, you'll see carbon-6 is phosphate in purple, and that follows over here, it's what we already have. What we now have is ATP, newly shown in red, putting a second phosphate on carbon number one. This phosphorylation reaction is exactly analogous to the first one. So no water is consumed in this reaction, 
and the products are ADP and a hydrogen ion. Now that we've phosphorylated both halves, we're ready to split it apart. And our goal is to get two identical halves, but this happens in two steps, steps four and five. Steps four, step four, uses the enzyme aldolase to convert fructose 1,6-bisphosphate into dihydroxyacetone phosphate and glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. Here we have two unequal parts. In step five, we use triosphosphate isomerase to convert dihydroxyacetone phosphate into glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, and in doing so, we wind up with two molecules of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, and between these two steps, we convert them into two equal and identical halves. Now, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is called bisphosphate because when we have two phosphates, we either have two phosphates together, in which case we have diphosphate, also known as pyrophosphate. An example would be adenosine diphosphate in ADP or thiamine pyrophosphate or thiamine diphosphate when we looked at thiamine, where the two phosphates are joined together. Bisphosphate means you have them separated, and fructose 1,6-bisphosphate means that the two separate phosphoryl groups are on carbon-1 and carbon-6. Now, we're relatively close to having two equal halves, but notice something here. We're breaking apart the pink part from the green part, and notice that in the green part of the molecule, we have a pink hydrogen that winds up going with the top half. The reason is, imagine a counterfactual example where we're splitting apart these two carbons. Well, they're joined together because they both don't have enough electrons in their valence shell, and so they're sharing a pair of electrons to achieve that. If we split that bond directly in half and did nothing else, we'd be in a situation where both of those carbons were in need of forming bonds, and they didn't have any bonds to form. Furthermore, if we take a pair of electrons, the pair that they're sharing, and we split it in half, we have two unpaired electrons that would make both halves free radicals. Free radicals are extremely reactive because they are unpaired electrons, and electrons really, really, really want to exist in pairs. So instead what we have is these two halves have been living together for a long time, ever since a plant made this molecule of glucose. And now it's time to split apart, and they need to negotiate how they're going to split their assets. So they cut a deal. Glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate is able to go directly into the next step of glycolysis without an isomerization reaction. Dihydroxyacetone phosphate needs to go through all the extra trouble of going through an additional step before it can get further down the glycolytic pathway. And so they say, look, I've got a harder time ahead, so I'm going to take my 5149, and I'm going to take that extra hydrogen, and you can go away without the hydrogen. Glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate doesn't even get any visitation rights. And so you can see what's happening here is dihydroxyacetone phosphate winds up relatively more reduced compared to glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, which winds up relatively more oxidized because this hydrogen came with its electron to fulfill this binding site. 
And now we've split apart this carbon, it's in need of a bond. We've oxidized this oxygen as the hydrogen left, it's in need of a bond. They come in on each other and form a double bond and that is the oxidized portion of the molecule. However, notice that the molecule as a whole is not any more or less oxidized. The most oxidized portion of the molecule is this aldehyde group in glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. Well, glucose from the very beginning had an aldehyde on carbon one. When we formed fructose, we moved it to a ketone position on carbon two, but it itself here is the most oxidized portion of the molecule. It could easily be moved into an aldehyde position. So because of that carbonyl that's come historically, we're now able to move it into the aldehyde position to make dihydroxyacetone phosphate equivalent to glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. And that's exactly what we do. If you look at the dihydroxyacetone phosphate on the top, you'll see the phosphate is on the very top and the ketone carbonyl is in the middle. If you just flip that molecule around, it will be in the position that it is on the bottom. The phosphate's shown on the bottom, the ketone carbonyl is in the middle. What we're doing is, with triosphosphate isomerase, we're catalyzing the movement of these hydrogens and their electrons from the first carbon down to the second. So what winds up in net happening is that the top carbon is oxidized, the middle carbon is reduced. Once we do that, we achieve the exact structure of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. Now we have two equal and opposite halves. Before we move on, another note about the naming. Glycerol is a three-carbon alcohol. We'll see glycerol later when we look at triglyceride hydrolysis into fatty acids and the glycerol backbone. Glycerol would be these three carbons, each with an OH group. Glyceraldehyde is glycerol with an aldehyde group. Although we don't see the, what. Well, Although we don't see the OH group on the bottom carbon, it's because it's phosphorylated. If we imagine hydrolysis of that phosphate, that would produce an OH group on the bottom, and that would produce glyceraldehyde. Dihydroxyacetone phosphate is like acetone, which is the ketone that corresponds to acetic acid or the acetyl group, where we have a ketone carbonyl in the middle and we have a methyl on each end. So if you imagine acetone with just a carbon, a CH3 here, a CH3 here, and a, and a ketone carbonyl in the middle, dihydroxy means an OH on one carbon and an OH on the other. We don't see the OH group because it's phosphorylated. If we hydrolyze that bond, an OH group would be there. But it's dihydroxyacetone phosphate because of that phosphate there. After steps four and five, we have two molecules of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. That means that in all the subsequent reactions where we're showing something, something happen once, it's actually happening twice, once to each molecule of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. In steps six and seven, a free phosphate donates an oxygen while removing energy as ATP. In net, what's happening here is the oxygen-rich phosphate molecule donates an oxygen that must later become water. Although that oxygen itself doesn't become water, the fact that we're adding oxygen here will be the reason, mathematically, that we need to have water remove an oxygen later, and we'll see that soon. What's also happening here 
is that NAD plus is oxidizing carbon number one. It's not oxidizing the aldehyde or the carbonyl, it's oxidizing the CH bond. And it's taking energy that it can take in the form of NADH down to the electron transport chain, but the energy released is not, is, the energy released is more than enough to reduce NAD plus to NADH and have way more than enough left over to make that energetically favorable. So much so that we can get a molecule of ATP out of it. And so what we have is a, another case of substrate level phosphorylation like happened in the citric acid cycle where phosphate in its free form came in and took the excess energy and brought it to ADP to form ATP in the next step. This is remarkably similar to what happened in substrate-level phosphorylation in the citric acid cycle. So NAD plus oxidizes the CH bond. The pair of electrons come to NAD plus. One neutralizes the positive charge. The other glues that red hydrogen to it to form NADH. In so doing, this carbon now oxidized is in need of electrons. Phosphate is, remember, in its free form, rich in oxygen, rich in electrons, and poor in energy. Phosphate comes in, it now is the donor of oxygen. It now is providing the electrons to form the bond. But it, being poor in energy, is able to come in, steal what energy is left over, and take it to form ATP in the next step. So this first step, where we make NADH and we make 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate, is catalyzed by glyceraldehyde, 3-phosphate dehydrogenase, and as you'd expect from a dehydrogenase, it's oxidizing something using NAD+. The bottom reaction, where that phosphate group is taken on to ADP to make ATP, is catalyzed by phosphoglycerate kinase. Kinase phosphorylates something, so it's named after the opposite backwards reaction, but in glycolysis, it's going forward to remove phosphate and form ATP. In doing that, phosphate leaves its oxygen on that molecule as it becomes 3-phosphoglycerate. So notice a couple things about the naming. Glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate is glyceraldehyde with a phosphoryl group on the third carbon. 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate is not like glyceraldehyde, it's like glycerate, which is the ionic form of glyceric acid. The carboxylic acid that corresponds to glycerol and glyceraldehyde is going to be what would have been glycerol, but with a carboxylic acid on one side. That carboxylic acid is formed when that phosphate donates the oxygen. You don't see the carboxyl group because the phosphoryl group is there, but if you hydrolyze that bond, you'd have a carboxylic acid. And in, in fact, we don't hydrolyze the bond, we take the phosphate to ADP, leaving that oxygen behind as if we had hydrolyzed it, and we form glyceric acid with that carboxylic acid part, only there's a phosphoryl group on carbon number three, so it's 3-phosphoglycerate. Now, in this reaction, we are forming ATP without consuming any water. And just like in steps one and three, where we phosphorylated glucose or fructose 6-phosphate, 
without consuming any water. Here, because we're leaving the oxygen behind, we form ATP without generating any water. And we have the reverse reaction where ADP and a hydrogen ion are reactants and ATP is the product. This is remarkably similar to what happened in the citric acid cycle during substrate level phosphorylation. During the decarboxylation of alpha-ketoglutarate, there was such a large negative delta G that we reduced NAD plus to NADH, but we had enough left over to make a molecule of ATP. To harness that energy, we made succinyl-CoA, storing the energy temporarily in the thioester bond of CoA. Then we had the energy-poor, oxygen-rich, free phosphate come in to form succinyl phosphate, leave the oxygen behind, and carry the energy to ATP. That then generated the carboxyl group of succinate. In steps six and seven of glycolysis, we have this remarkably analogous phenomenon where the oxidation of glyceraldehyde-free phosphate has more than enough energy to make NADH. What's left over is taken when the energy-poor, oxygen-rich phosphate comes in, leaves the oxygen behind, and carries the energy, in another case of substrate-level phosphorylation, to make ATP, thus making a carboxyl group of 3-phosphoglycerate. In steps 8, 9, and 10, ATP is produced while water is released. What happens is in 3-phosphoglycerate, we have the phosphate on the third carbon. Phosphoglycerate mutase moves that phosphate from the third carbon to the second carbon. That gets it out of the way so that the OH group of the third carbon and the H of the second carbon can form together to make water and the water can leave. The leaving of water, the dehydration of 2-phosphoglycerate is accomplished by catalysis mediated by the enzyme enolase. That produces phosphoenol pyruvate. In the last step, phosphate is removed, carrying the energy to ADP to make ATP, and a last case of substrate-level phosphorylation generating pyruvate. Now, you may ask, why is this so complicated? Why would we remove water in one step and then remove phosphate in the other when we could just hydrolyze the phosphate to make ATP. The reason will become clearer when we cover gluconeogenesis. What we'll see is that phosphoenol pyruvate is a very important intermediate that allows the intersection of these two pathways, glycolysis and gluconeogenesis. So, Without explaining that point further right now, we'll say that we have to have a relatively more complicated way to do this because we have to have phosphoenol pyruvate before we get to pyruvate. An enol is an ene, ene, E-N-E, means a double bond between two carbons, and an ol, an OH group. You don't see the OH group because the phosphate's covering it up, but if you hydrolyze this bond, you would see an OH group. Therefore, enol refers to those two patterns put together. Phosphoenol refers to the fact that the enol portion of the molecule is phosphorylated. Phosphoenol pyruvate refers to the fact that when you get rid of phosphate, you get pyruvate. Now, you could ask, 
why, when you get rid of the phosphate, do you not have an enol? Well, that goes back to lesson six, where we explained that enols tautomerize with ketones, and the overwhelming product is the ketone, because double bonds between carbon and oxygen are more stable than double bonds between two carbons. The reasons for that are explained in more detail in lesson six. So when we remove the phosphate, we naturally have the migration of the double bond from the carbon-carbon position to the carbon-oxygen position, and that makes the ketone carbonyl that makes pyruvate the simplest alpha keto acid. Meanwhile, the hydrogen becomes part of the methyl group. Once again, when we have a phosphoryl group transfer that doesn't generate or consume water, ADP and hydrogen ions are on one side, ATP on the other side, just as in all the other reactions that we've seen so far in glycolysis. So what we have here is that this water mathematically accounts for the oxygen that we had added in the last case of substrate-level phosphorylation. That water is the one water that's produced for each pyruvate during glycolysis, and remember that all of this after we form glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate is happening twice. So those are the two waters that are produced in glycolysis per glucose that enters. So what we've seen overall is that in the glucose molecule, we had too much oxygen to make an acetyl group, but we're taking care of the oxygen to carbon ratio during the decarboxylation of pyruvate. That means that we want to get to pyruvate preserving that ratio of carbon to oxygen. In the first two cases of phosphorylation, in steps one and three, we had the addition of phosphate that was not oxygen-rich because it came directly from the ATP molecule. It was energy-rich because it came directly from the ATP molecule. But unlike the usual case where we hydrolyze that bond, Oxygen was so, glucose was so oxygen rich that we didn't need water to be consumed and there was no net change in the oxygen to carbon ratio in either of those cases, but there was energy investment. Once we obtained two molecules of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate, having cleaved the original sugar in half, we entered into the energy generation phase. And in our first case of substrate-level phosphorylation, we had to have an energy-poor phosphate come in to remove energy during substrate-level phosphorylation to make ATP. But the cost of having an energy-poor phosphate come in to capture that energy is that phosphates are oxygen-rich. And so in that case, we added an oxygen and that requires removal of the oxygen later to keep the balance so that we retain the correct carbon to oxygen ratio as we put pyruvate into decarboxylation, thereby then achieving the correct oxygen to carbon ratio in the acetyl group. So because of the substrate-level phosphorylation mediated by glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase and phosphoglycerate kinase, we needed to remove that oxygen as water. In net, there were two substrate-level phosphorylations in those steps because we have two molecules of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate, so we remove two waters per glucose molecule that enters glycolysis. In the last generation of energy, 
we don't need an energy-poor phosphate to come in and take it. What we're actually doing is we're removing the energy contained in the phosphoryl group's bond with the sugar molecule that we had originally invested. And because we added the phosphate without generating or consuming water, we can remove the phosphate without generating or consuming any water, never disturbing the oxygen to carbon ratio that we need. In lesson 10, we said that carbohydrate oxidation consumes 50% less water than fat. The way we were counting that was to use the standard stoichiometry presented in textbooks, which says that one water is produced per pyruvate molecule. And in that case, although three water are consumed per acetyl group, and one pyruvate generates one acetyl group, we generate one water and we consume three water, and that's a net consumption of two water, versus one water used for each acetyl group production in beta oxidation of fatty acids plus three waters making four. However, when we covered the citric acid cycle, we decided that three waters were consumed because unlike the standard stoichiometry of textbooks, which only accounts for the molecules and not all of the oxygen atoms, we pointed out that a third water is irreversibly consumed outside of the citric acid cycle to produce the free phosphate that carries the oxygen from that water into the cycle. That means that we have to apply the same standard to glycolysis now that we've covered those principles. If we're being fair, we'll point out that if we go beyond the standard stoichiometry shown in textbooks, we'll see that water is irreversibly consumed in the hydrolysis of ATP to produce the phosphate that comes into glycolysis for part of that substrate-level phosphorylation. And that accounts for the one water that's made per pyruvate. Remember, per glucose molecule, this is two waters that are coming in, two waters that are going out. Per pyruvate, it's one. In that case, glycolysis is water neutral. So it would be more accurate to count it as burning carbs burns through three water, burning fats burns through four water. And so more accurate is to say that burning carbs consumes 75% or three quarters of the water that burning fat does. Keep in mind here that as we're thinking about water comes in, water goes out, net balance and nothing happens, keep in mind that the steps in which we produce ATP and glycolysis aren't just about accounting for energy. As we covered in the lessons on exercise science, the substrate-level phosphorylation that occurs in glycolysis allows ATP production in the absence of oxygen, even in the absence of mitochondria in the case of red blood cells, for example. So that ATP isn't just about the quantitative balance of energy, it's also about the unique physiological purpose of substrate-level phosphorylation that occurs in glycolysis, which is an energetic system that is only possible through carbohydrate. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. 
can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to keep watching these lessons, go to my YouTube at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or my Facebook at facebook.com slash, you guessed it, chrismasterjohn. Or if you really want to get the most out of these lessons, consider signing up for MWM Pro. MWM Pro gives you these lessons, but with premium features that are all based around your ability to use tools to get the most out of these lessons at your own pace in the way that you learn best. MWM Pro has keyword searchable database of all the lessons and easily keyword searchable videos. There are transcripts that are both in web page and PDF format. In both cases, you have easily collected hyperlinks to further reading materials that have a world of enriching information at your fingertips, where you can easily, with one click, get to whatever is most relevant to that lesson. Finally, there's a community with a forum for each lesson where you can ask each other questions, and you can ask questions that I can occasionally pop in and answer as well. So if you want to get the most out of these lessons, really study them, learn them, master them with Chris Masterjohn, sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.